Thank you for downloading or podcasting this track. This recording has been remastered to provide the best sound possible given the audio environment of the original recording session. Mosaic Silver Spring is a faith community located just inside the Capitol Beltway in Montgomery County. For more information, please visit our website, www.mosaicsilverspring.org, and we'll see you in the neighborhood. Good morning, church. So I'll be reading from Exodus 20 and then from Philippians 4. And God spoke all these things, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. And then from Philippians. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, and that now at length you have received your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet, it was kind of you to share in my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that um, we would bring you glory and that we would um, live lives that honor you. I pray that you will be with us now, that you will clear our minds um, and help us to listen intently. I pray that we would grow, that we would learn. I pray you be with Joel um, as he speaks. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks, Stephanie. Um, So, true story. Like two weeks ago, I got an email from Joel St. Clair from an email address that I didn't recognize that said, hey, I really need your help. I'm about to step in a meeting, no phone calls, just the email. Signed, Pastor Joel. And uh, this was quite fascinating to me, right? Like uh, someone's emailing me using my name. This happens because once your information's on a website, then people will use it. They'll uh, effectively, explicitly try to ask you for uh, some, some sort of gift card or send them some sort of code. No phone calls, just email, uh, and they'll reach out to you. Uh, these kind of, uh, in effect, spam attacks where someone is, is phishing for information or for gift cards 
is just now part of the reality of the world that we live in where people will reach out. These are like seen. So you know that if someone ever calls you, texts you, uh, or emails you asking for your credit card number or for your social security number or uh, to send them gift cards, even if the name looks familiar but the email isn't, don't do that, right? Everyone knows that. Those are like those seen attacks. Uh, But then there's a type of uh, attack that happens through the web that's unseen. Uh, There's a type of attack where uh, people will use um, connected computers often or ways to communicate through the internet where they start sending lots and lots of messages to one uh, server or website in an effort to shut it down. And you can't visibly see this. It's a distributed denial of service attack. So these networks, computers, uh, basically just start sending so much information at one source or port that it kind of overwhelms it. And then it can't act in the way that it's supposed to act. And when that's going on, you have to have good cybersecurity people or engineers who can kind of figure out because it's not so visible. It's not an email that drops in. It's not a phone call. It's not a text. Uh, This is just happening through the interconnectedness of the web. As human beings, we have tried to make the case through the Ten Commandments that we're designed to love God with all of who we are and to love our neighbors as ourselves. And as the Ten Commandments unpack, there are seen ways that we just utterly struggle to do that. God has given us a rule of love to know how to love him and how to love our neighbors as ourselves. And uh, so uh, through uh, murder and adultery and stealing and the ways in which we use our words, in a sense, those are the seen ways in which uh, we may live up or fail to live up to what God has commanded us to be. The same with idols or the ways in which we use um, our day of rest. But then there are unseen ways in which we can fail to love. And that's what the 10th commandment, as we've worked our way through, and we've gone through those first four commandments that seem to be focused on how we love God, and then the the next uh, five that seem to uh, focus on how we love our neighbor as ourselves, we arrive to the 10th commandment, which is a command to not covet. And as Adam alluded to in the confession of sin, coveting is not super familiar to us. It's not something in common parlance. Even though it's a five-letter word, I don't know that it'll ever show up in a wordle because we just don't use it that much. Uh, It's just not a common thing. So I want to define it for you on the front end as we get rolling this morning. To covet is to nurse a desire for what someone else has from a heart of discontentment with what the Lord has given you. So to covet is to desire something that someone else has, and that desire is being nursed or carried along by an inner discontentment with what the Lord has given to you. And it's an unseen way in which we can fail to live up to the Ten Commandments. So it is hard to love your neighbor as yourself when you are actively scheming and desiring in your heart for the stuff that they have. And uh, so in the Tenth Commandment, when we conclude uh, uh, all that God has given us, we have had these ways in which we can focus on loving God and loving our neighbor in ways that are seen, 
And now this morning, with the 10th commandment, as we bring this series to a close, we can focus on loving our neighbor in the unseen ways that are driven along by our own desires. And we're going to look at that this morning through looking at Exodus 20 and looking at Paul's letters to the Philippians in two points. The coveting of others and contentment in the Lord. So in Exodus 20, uh, verse 17, you shall not cover your neighbors and then like blank. It, it lists a number of items. But I think the sense that we're getting from the Ten Commandments in verse 17 is that uh, effectively anything that is your neighbors that you begin to have designs on, that uh, uh, that desire grows from a spot of discontentment, then you're coveting their stuff. In the context of Exodus, remember the uh, people of God, they had been in slavery for four centuries and more. 430 years they had spent uh, enslaved to Pharaoh and the Egyptians, having to carry out life, uh, doing what they were told, and uh, asking no questions. And when God shows up to redeem, to set free from oppression, to lead out to freedom, freedom to worship and freedom to love, uh, they begin to travel out to the lands that God had given them. That's the redemptive historical context that these commandments come. So as the people have left Egypt and God has delivered them from the hand of oppression. And as they head to this land where they can freely worship God and freely love one another, God's framing up for them. And he's saying, look, this involves how you think about your neighbor's stuff. So it certainly involves how you love God. It certainly involves things like murder and anger, uh, things like adultery and uh, faithfulness. It involves how we use our words to speak to one another. But it also involves how we think about uh, the good of one another and the good things that one another has. The people of God in Exodus knew what it was like to desire something else from a source of discontentment. You could take just as one example in the book of Exodus, manna. Manna in the book of Exodus was God's way of providing for his people. As they were making that long trip, a trip that took much longer than their initial deliverance from Egypt, they had to eat because they're human. And God provided a way for them to eat in a supernatural way. He gave them manna. And uh, in, in a sense, he is graciously providing for their most basic and fundamental needs. But in giving them manna, they begin to grow tired of it. And as they do, they begin to covet the stuff that the Egyptians have. They would sit around. It would sound something like this. Do you remember when we were back in Egypt? Oh, the good food that we had. And it would stir in them this discontentment with the ways in which the Lord had provided for them, where they began to long for the food that they had. E even though they were enslaved and oppressed, they liked that food. But it wasn't just that that food may have been good. Maybe it was. But it was that there was this connection between what somebody else had and a discontentment with the way in which the Lord actively provided. Those two things are linked together. 
it's helpful for us when we think about coveting to understand the link of those two things because it helps us. Because if you're sitting and, and you followed along so far with where I've gone with this, then you may say, well, wait a second. Are you saying coveting is just when I see uh, some nice clothes or some nice stuff that somebody else has and I'm like, oh, that's pretty nice. Like, I wouldn't mind having that. Is that coveting? No. Not quite. It's part of coveting. That discontentment piece is a pretty important part. Uh, Martin Luther uh, was uh, a monk who then started a reformation in the 16th century. And he wrote quite a bit on, uh, on the Ten Commandments and on the Lord's Prayer. And he uses, I think, a, a really helpful illustration to describe how you know when you've moved just from like recognizing the good stuff that your neighbors may have to like this discontentment. He uh, is writing, and, and in the moment he's writing about temptation and the Lord's Prayer. Uh, but here's what he says. He says, a, a father and a son are talking. And uh, the son is asking, uh, how can I avoid temptation? Like, I just don't want to have these thoughts anymore. And the father says to him, you can't help a bird flying over your head, but you can keep it from building a nest in your hair. And then he goes on to quote Augustine and says, We cannot pre prevent offenses or temptations, but by prayer and invocation of God, we can prevent them from overcoming us. And I find it so helpful. I think that's how we do business in the 21st century world here in the metro D.C. area where there's a, a ton of really competent, gifted people. And there's a lot of good stuff going on. And, and so it's not sinful, it's not coveting to recognize that good stuff. That's just the bird flying overhead in this area. You're going to come across people who are incredibly gifted, and you can admire and recognize those gifts. You're going to come across people who have really cool stuff, and you can admire it. Those are just birds flying in the air, right? But the minute that you go, man, I just don't know if I can ever be happy again unless I also have that thing. That's the nest getting built in your hair, okay? That's the discontentment with your current circumstances in life that you begin to not only recognize the good, the birds flying, but this, and I just can't be happy. Does, doesn't Jesus love me? Then why don't I have the newest blank? Or why haven't I achieved the status blank? That's the discontentment piece that moves from the recognition of good stuff to the discontentment and of coveting. And, and so what it looks like for us in our time and place when it comes to the 10th commandment is when we see good things, uh, do we begin to scheme for them? Uh, do we begin to have designs on them? Do we begin to nurse Bring along, help grow up, build an environment for our own discontentment with our station in life. It's something that we can so easily do. And we can make excuses for it. In our time and place, uh, oftentimes we can say, well, I just have goals. I have life goals. I want to achieve those. And so I'm going to work hard no matter what till I get those goals. And uh, on the surface, none of that's wrong or bad. But is what's driving that an effort to glorify God or a discontentment with what you have and a coveting of what others have? That's the unseen challenges for us. 
In our current cultural moment, we experience, in a sense, our own spiritual DDoS attacks uh, on our lives. We're bombarded uh, with sometimes an overwhelming amount of uh, here's the things you need to be happy. Here's the things you should accomplish in order to have real joy. And that's all going on while many of us experience real suffering. Physical suffering, chronic pain, emotional and mental suffering, relational suffering. Like there's real struggle that's going on in our lives. And, uh, and so in the midst of that, when we're experiencing real suffering and we see other good stuff, we have to be really cautious about not uh, nursing, uh, building, and carrying along that discontent. And Paul, in his letter to the Philippians, gives us a great example of how to do that faithfully. So in his letter, he models for us, here's what contentment in the Lord looks like. Paul in Philippians, uh, it's oftentimes called a prison epistle. Uh, Effectively, it's a letter from Paul being written when he's in jail, when he doesn't have much. He has been writing about joy, and here in chapter 4, about contentment. And he's doing it when he's locked up and doesn't even get to experience his own freedom, much less some of the natural joys or pleasures in life that would be his. How is that possible? He unpacks it for us. In verse 10, he writes, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I'm in to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Uh, When I was growing up, uh, I... um, was taught to memorize Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I would encourage you to memorize it. It's a great verse to memorize. But it's also an often abused verse, right? Because because, uh, taken out of its context, you can think, I can do whatever I want in life uh, through Christ who strengthens me. And that's not quite what Paul's getting at in that broader context. It's important to understand that full paragraph there. Because as I understand what he's saying is, in every circumstance, whether I'm doing really well, I'm healthy, I'm wealthy, things are going good, Paul said, through Christ who strengthens me, I know how to deal with that stuff without losing sight of real my, where my real hope is found. And, and on the flip side, remember, he's writing from prison, locked up, has nothing, and he's talking over and over and over more than any other letter that Paul writes about joy. The joy of the Lord is my strength. So Dan reminded us the, earlier this morning, he's writing of contentment. He's saying, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Whether that all things is dealing through the good times or the all things is dealing with the bad times, in any and every circumstance, it is the Lord Jesus Christ that meets me there in a real and personal way and and, and helps me stop the discontentment, right? Or maybe put positively, helps remind me of where my hope and value 
and sense of joy can really be found. That's something that here we can never be reminded of because as we get pinged from advertisers and friends and all that's around us, instead of becoming overwhelmed about what we don't have, we, as Paul encourages us, can turn to the resurrected Jesus through faith and be reminded that we have all that is good in him. So that when we're doing really well and we get everything that we want, we can say, right, but this doesn't exceed the, uh, the inheritance that we have through Jesus Christ. We can do all things through him who strengthens us. Or when we're struggling and uh, things aren't going well and we don't feel well and we can wonder, is it just me? We can turn in faith. And God, in a personal way, meets us, reaches out to us, lifts our faces to him, and gives us the the strength to continue on. That is the way in which we can battle and do business with discontentment in the 21st century. Augustine of Hippo in the 4th century I think it's considered uh, by most like English scholars is the, the first autobiography, his confessions. But in it, he writes, you have made us for yourself. He's talking about humanity in relationship to the creator God. That God has uh, made us in his image. That his rule of love is operative in our lives. That, that for us, we can't set aside this calling or feeling or sense that we should love God and love our neighbor because it is deeply ingrained. It's wired into who we are. And Augustine writes, our hearts are restless until they can find rest in you. He's, the Apostle Paul is doing business with that reality that our restless hearts, our uh, discontentment can never ultimately be dealt with apart from God himself. That through faith in Jesus, we have an opportunity to fulfill who God has created us to be, to positively connect to one another. If we care about being a multi-ethnic church and living in a global city, one of the ways in which this works out into our lives, and it's important, I think, for us to understand it, is that uh, certain cultures can wrestle with certain sins in specific ways, right? We think that that's true at Mosaic. And, and so uh, it is true that if all of humanity is called to love God with all of who they are and to love their neighbors as themselves, there are certain cultural dynamics and societal pressures that are going to make some of those commands harder than for others. And so one of the benefits of being a multi-ethnic church with people who uh, are familiar with, are representative of different cultures across the world is that it can help us uh, here where we're located to do business with the reality of coveting. I think there's a reason, and Adam alluded to it in the Confession of Sin, why in America you hear lots about anger and uh, murder and adultery, but coveting doesn't get as much play. It's something that we can learn Uh, from others uh, here in America uh, that um, the forces of desire to scheme for other things or to accomplish certain stuff, the nursing of discontentment 
uh, is in the cultural soil. And so we can try to do business with that by turning to Jesus Christ. Here's what that looks like. When we face challenges in our lives, instead of becoming overwhelmed with them, with anxiety, we can view them as channels to return to Jesus and to use our gifts as faithfully as we can. So when we meet challenges, we can say, hey, oh, this is just so challenging. I don't know what I can do. And we can become overwhelmed or we can view that as a channel to say, listen, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This is part of the circumstances that I've dealt. I can pray. I can uh, lean on the support and care of my community. I can come to Christ. In the midst of our suffering, we may be tempted to become overwhelmed. We can view our suffering as seminars of God's care in our lives. If you suffer and there's no broader hope outside of your immediate suffering, it makes life incredibly difficult. Becoming a Christian does not take suffering away. And if someone's told you that, I'm sorry, I believe they've lied to you. Christians suffer and have suffered as long as Christ has been resurrected and the church has been navigating the world that we now live in. Suffering is real and it's a part of Christian communities. Uh, and so there's no immediate relief to it, but there is a broader context to it. Because as Christians, if we believe that Jesus is raised from the dead, then we have hope beyond our immediate circumstances. In the midst of our suffering, we're not promised immediate relief, but it can be a seminar, an opportunity to turn to Jesus. And in that way, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Finally, in our successes, we can pump ourselves up, we can uh, post loudly uh, about how well we're doing. Uh, we can ensure in the holidays that we ask questions and get that return question to make sure everybody knows what we have accomplished in the last year. Or we can view our successes as sources. That while these things are good and they should be celebrated, there is a source of blessing and goodness that runs much deeper and much longer than anything that we can accomplish. Even our successes, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Being a Christian is more than just changing your behavior in certain ways. Uh, being a Christian is more than just uh, uh, following a set of religious rules. Being a Christian is being invited into the family of God in a personal way through faith in Jesus where God meets us in the resurrected Christ by the power of his spirit and enlivens us to be able to turn our challenges into channels that bring him glory, to uh, live even with sometimes very difficult suffering and see them as seminars to remind us of God's broader purpose in the world that goes beyond and deeper than our immediate circumstances and to navigate our successes and see them as sources for us to bring glory to God. To recognize that uh, while we make good decisions and use our gifts in faithful ways, and sometimes that, that results in great success, that those are often reflections that's us bearing God's image faithfully uh, in the world in which he has created and he has given us gifts.
That's what the Christian life looks like. And so as we move into the season of Advent where we begin to wait for Christ to return and we begin to close the season in the Ten Commandments, I just want to encourage you that as we navigate the pressures that we face in our current moments, that God has personally taken on humanity so that we can meet those challenges, that we can live in the midst of suffering, and that we can celebrate successes properly, not only as individuals, but as a community. May God give us strength to do that as we wait for his return. Let me pray. God, I ask that you will help us as a community to be faithful. The Ten Commandments are are challenging, like live this out, every day, in every minute of our lives? How could we possibly do that? And yet, God, you graciously meet us. You meet us in our moments of success. You meet us in our moments of suffering. You meet us uh, in our moments of deep need. You have given yourself in love for us and graciously hold out your hand. God, I pray in faith that as a community, we will faithfully walk forward and that you will strengthen us to that end. In Christ's name, as a community, we pray. And everyone said together, amen. Amen. amen.